Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Normally at Cambridge, I'm accustomed to um, non-volunteer audiences, so you'll have to, <laughs> have to stay with me. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and talk for 45 minutes, so there's enough time for questions. And if, if uh, questions could be kept quite brief, and I'll try and keep the answers quite brief. Well, they probably will be, because this, uh, the subject of secret intelligence is a subject on which it's always extremely difficult to get real material. And uh, if that's the case in Britain, um, it's certainly the case in Russia even today. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just uh, give you a few, uh, a trip, a fast trip through uh, with a few vignettes. Um, to indicate how complex and how interesting it is. Now, the image of uh, the Soviet Union put out during the, certainly the early part of the Cold War and the middle Cold War, which the people with hair my color will no doubt deeply remember, was the image created by Zbigniew Brzezinski in the early 50s at Harvard, which was this uh, great uh, totalitarian monolith where nothing really happened except as a decision of one man. And it's always struck me, even if I've run a committee in, in the university, that this must have been nigh on impossible because it's like herding cats. But in Russia, you know, with, with 220 to 250 million people during this period, it must have been completely impossible, however submissive the population was. And when one gets into the material, you start to see that there was a politics to secret intelligence as there was to foreign policy, not quite the politics that David Cameron would recognize, but a, a rather a sort of Byzantine form of politics, more Eastern than Western, more Central Asian than West European, if you like. Well, um, and that revolves largely around the figure of Stalin. And there's a whole historiography on Stalin, which is entirely misleading, which has him sitting at a piano, pressing the chords, and all of a sudden things happen in Russia. One of the main reasons he shot so many people was because it was extremely difficult to get people to do exactly what you wanted them to do. In their nature, they just didn't... Uh, didn't fully submit. So that makes the history of secret intelligence not only important, because obviously for, for half of the last century, Russia was really the major preoccupation of the West, the reason for the foundation of NATO, the United States justification for superpower, and, um, and a justification for taking a large amount of money out of our pockets as taxpayers. Um, but there was something substantial to it, and the, the substantial element obviously begins with the October Revolution in 1917. But this was a revolution brought into existence not to create a superpower armed to the teeth. It was supposed to be a revolution for everybody, let's say everybody except those who own vast amounts of money, control factories, large amounts of land, all the rest of it. It was supposed to be a revolution for the working class, and it was made a revolution in the name of the international working class, not just for the Russians. Because, in fact, the working class of Russia, in percentage terms, was minuscule. It was highly concentrated, large numbers, but minuscule in terms of uh, Western and Central Europe. So for this international revolution to succeed, other people had to join it. And the great 
fixation was, of course, to bring Germany in because Germany was the place Karl Marx came from. Germany was the place of high technology. Germany the, was the place that was beating Britain in terms of industrial production. And obviously, if you harnessed your world revolution to the power of Germany, its military power, its economic power, its technological power, its cultural power, kultur, then, you know, you really did have a chance of taking over the whole of Europe and transforming the nature of politics. That's what it was supposed to do in the terms of liberating people socially and economically. Well, that was the idea. But the idea began to go badly wrong because a lot of the assumptions unraveled. The, main, the most important assumption that unraveled was that the Germans did not rise up in revolution and greet the Russians, squash the Poles, and take over the rest of Europe and liberate the rest of Europe for communism. This just didn't happen. Um, that assumption linked with Lenin's early death, Lenin who brought the revolution to Russia on these terms, led to power struggles in Russia that brought Stalin to power. Now, Stalin, you know, looked fairly benign in photographs in the 1920s. Um, he always had a pipe in hand, and um, he always had a good word to say about everybody, or most people except Trotsky, who was his main rival. Now, Stalin got to power basically by working behind the scenes. And here we get the link with secret intelligence very quickly. Because obviously the revolution was really predicated on openness, on public meetings, uh, generating mass, mass activism. But Stalin preferred the back office. And so from the early 20s, Lenin was non-compass mentis from um, the latter half of 1922, effectively. So the power struggle began. Now, one of the reasons why they needed a secret intelligence service, because normally, you know, you get by without one, mostly. I get by without one, was because the revolution had failed. Russia had to fight off those who wished to destroy the revolution, led in those days by the British Empire, Winston Churchill as Minister of War. But this enterprise failed catastrophically because it assumed the Russians would greet us as friends. Yet another foreign intervention based on a questionable assumption about the attitudes of the receiving population. And, um, in fact, it had a reverse effect because the boys who were out there fighting in Russia wondered why they were there because they had been fighting Germans before and the Russians um, threw propaganda at them which suggested they rise up against their own masters. So you had uh, mutinies in the French fleet, you had minor mutinies in British units, and in the end, Lloyd George, who was prime minister and a great fairly corrupt pragmatist, decided to fold the whole thing up at the end of um, 1919 and go home. So in other words, Russia was left with this experience, left without the spread of world revolution, left without friends in the world, really, and a secret intelligence service was obviously essential. You needed to know what the enemy was doing. But actually, the main enemy wasn't foreign powers. The main enemy were your fellow Russians who you pushed out of power and were largely residing in East and Central Europe, and I would say Paris. Um, the better off were in Paris. 
there were hundreds of thousands of them, and they were itching to go back in, and they got funding from the Romanian government, the Polish government, uh, the French government, and a little more reluctantly, the British government, because taxpayers were complaining about everything, as usual, in the 1920s. Um, so the, the major enemy abroad was actually Russian emigres. That was the focus. And, and this explains a bewildering behavior by the Russian intelligence services, that they were so focused on the Russian emigres that they would ruin relations with an important power like France in order to assassinate a counter-revolutionary leader whom most of Western Europe hadn't heard of. This was General Kutyapov in the spring of 1930. They just grabbed him on the way to church, bunged him in the back of a taxi, stuffed chloroform in his face. He then had a heart attack, which wasn't supposed to happen. So they thought, oh my God, we better get rid of the body. And then they rushed down to the south of France, got on a boat, took him out of the country and showed him to their best friends in Moscow. Um, but this was a disaster for relations with a major power in Europe, namely France. In other words, the Russian government, and this was under Stalin by then from 1929, was more concerned with domestic stability than it was with um, coping directly with foreign enemies. Well, the picture we have of Russian intelligence hitherto has been very much molded on our knowledge of the KGB, which began as the Cheka under Dzerzhinsky. And this KGB was fundamentally one type of organization all the way through. Even today, the Russian um, foreign intelligence out outfit, the SVR, claims direct identity with the KGB. They're extremely proud of the KGB traditions. That's how I managed to get some of the sources from them. But there were other parts to Russian intelligence. And there are two parts that always get missed out. One is Soviet military intelligence, and the other part are codes and ciphers, which today are known and generally, generically known as Russia as the special service, rather like GCHQ. So in other words, the setup for intelligence very much started to look like, a bit like the British model. And in fact, the Russians regarded the British secret services as the model to follow. The trouble was their direct access was not always that good, although it became much too great for us. Um, so actually knowing what... It, so they tended to follow a model of the model rather than the real thing itself. They assumed the British Secret Service was set up hundreds of years ago and was the same thing in 1917 as it had been under Queen Elizabeth. Of course, it wasn't. Um, they also assumed the British had agents absolutely everywhere. So you can imagine, if you're running a country like Russia with the largest borders in the world, and you assume the British have agents everywhere, this isn't a good, good time to democratize the country. You, mean, you don't want the agents to feel comfortable. In fact, you need everybody to act as some sort of a counter-espionage person. And the Russia I first went to in 1968, I managed to get somebody I was practicing my Russian with take, him, take me back to his flat, which was a very unusual thing. And I got upstairs to the flat. He was in his 20s then, 
opened the door. There was his wife standing beside the cot, and he introduced me, and she, her face looked with horror and said, get out, get out. And that was my first Russian flat, because the law that was still prevailing, even in 68, was the law of 1948, which meant it was illegal to take foreigners into your apartment. And in fact, the concierge downstairs was probably phoning the Lubyanka at the time we came in to report a Westerner had come into the building. That's how this sort of mad mindset about the obsession with agents. Now, Stalin was a paradox. Stalin believed very much in human intelligence, that's to say agents, recruiting people out there. But Stalin was incredibly suspicious of people. That's why he killed so many of them. But he, he regarded human intelligence as vital. So Stalin's image of intelligence is a very, very important one because it actually goes beyond his lifetime right into the 60s and 70s. And that was you, um, you have your regular organization, you have your head of station in whatever country, and you have a ray of people working in the station. They call them a residentura. And this would include a man called a verboshnik, whose job it was to go out and recruit people. And they would recruit someone. Now, to save time, they would recruit people who, were, who had direct access, but not top people. They'd recruit secretaries, because things came across their desk. Or they would recruit valets, you know, the, the ambassador's valet. Somebody with access to things who could get the keys out of the ambassador's pocket and open the safe and get the stuff. Stalin always wanted to see original documents, which as a historian I can understand is very sensible. But the way he would get them is through burglary. So this conception of how to operate, the predominant conception on the one hand was to burgle as much as possible. Now, if you want a burglar, you're not going for the highest quality of person. So in other words, the, um, the Chika, which later becomes KGB, were recruiting all sorts of the dregs of society who might be able to do jobs for them, uh, just for the right amount of money. But Stalin regarded human intelligence as something more important than that. You had to find friends. This was his term that you needed to recruit high-level people who are going somewhere in society who could get things done, who didn't need paying. Well, that was cheap, but actually also owed you some loyalty. And this is where the very constitution of the Soviet Union as the future of the world revolution came into play. In other words, a lot of people across the face of Europe and the United States were willing and eager to become communists. And if they came from the right background and they turned up at King Street in London and said, oh, I want to sign up for the party, somebody would be called out to see them and say, do you really want to do this? Um, there's other work you could do. <laughs> and so they would become secret members of the party and then they would be put on to intelligence work and they would be told they were working for the communist world revolution, and this was their contribution. Um, and a quite remarkable number of people, even from Britain, signed up to this out of strong belief. Now, 
This brings us, for example, to the Cambridge Five, the notorious Cambridge Five, none of whom was recruited in Cambridge, I have to tell you. It was London. <laughs> Full of sin, not Cambridge, where they were recruited. And um, um, that all started entirely by accident because Kim Philby, as an undergraduate, was a, quite a left-winger. He was the treasurer of the University Socialist Society, which was a front for the Communist Party. He wasn't formally a member of the party at all. And then he, during the period he was an undergraduate, during the Great Depression, the beginning of the Depression, he came in 29, and seeing these dreadful conditions in Britain where there really wasn't a welfare system at all, he became pretty convinced that there had to be another way out. None of the major parties offered one, and so he saw communism as the way through. And then when he, had, when he graduated, like most undergraduates, certainly previous generation, they had no idea what to do. And he took advice from his supervisor um, in economics, who was Morris Dobb, who was um, a member of the Communist Party. And Morris Dobb put him in touch with people in Paris, and people in Paris put him in touch with people in Vienna. And before he knew it, Philby was out in Austria under a very grisly fascistic regime um, involved in courier work and in taking secret documents around and trying to get refugees places, a way of getting out of the country. And, and Philby was given the entire Balkans to operate in. This is a 21-year-old uh, with no experience of anything and in the course of this, he was introduced um, by Mitzi to Litzi. Um, Mitzi thought that Litzi needed a proper boyfriend after her previous marriage messed up, so she introduced him to Kim for two reasons. He was a convinced Marxist, and she'd never met one from Britain before, and he was a gentleman, which meaning he didn't attack her and pull her clothes off immediately. So um, she introduced Philby... To Litzy, I don't think Philby, who had a terrible stutter and was very shy, had ever got that close to a woman before, so they got, got married almost immediately. It isn't the case that he married her to get out of the country. It is the case they fell deeply in love and then married, and he got out of the country. But during the course of these operations, Philby didn't know who he was working for. He was supposed to be working for something called Workers' Aid. And, um, you know, Looked all right. Um, then he went back to Britain and thought, I must join the party. So he went along to King Street, the headquarters, and said, please let me join. They said, no, no, sorry, you can't do that, and pushed him out. And, um, and then he got a visit from a friend of his wife's, uh, who his wife was a communist, and his mother was horrified at this, of course. And then um, this friend then introduced him to someone else, and they had a meeting in the park. And this person he met was Arnold Deutsch, who was a Slovak Jew, who was an extraordinary uh, charismatic figure. Anyway, all this is out there. You can read it in Chris Andrews' books. But the point was that Philby became the first of several that they recruited who'd graduated from Cambridge, and the one led them to another. It ended up with Anthony Blunt, um, the uh, famous art historian. Um, now, the point about all these people were they were recruited for communism. They weren't recruited for anti-fascism. 
They weren't recruited because they hated Hitler. They were recruited because they believed in a Marxist-Leninist solution to the world. They believed in the October Revolution. It worked out badly for them in the end. I mean, Blunt lasted longer, and then his last years were ruined by all these revelations. And, um, and Philby ended up in Moscow um, loathing the regime he had to live under, then adjusting to these realities. He was a great realist. It's interesting, Philby, in the end, got betrayed, not by all sorts of people who should have told on him but didn't. He got betrayed by one woman who used to run operations in Marks and Spencers in London, who'd emigrated to Israel, and Philby, as correspondent for the Observer and the Economist, foolishly attacked the Israelis over their treatment of the Arabs in the Economist and the Observer, and so she told on him in the early 60s. She didn't tell on him when he was doing all the spying. She told on him later. And um, this was quite extraordinary. These people held their positions through uh, interconnecting friendships. So when Stalin um, pontificated about the importance of who to recruit, who were the best agents to have? The best agents were friends, he said. The best agents were people who were ideologically your friends, committed to the Soviet Union. If you get them because they've slept with somebody or you get them through money, then they will in the end betray you and they will betray us. That was his belief. So there's Stalin valuing people. But, but in every other respect, that didn't quite show through. And this creates a problem. But it does set up the point that Stalin's view of intelligence was human intelligence was a critical one, whether you use burglars or whether you use bright young men from Cambridge mostly. I don't know what happened to the Oxford people. It just didn't work out. <laughs> Too worldly. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so um, now... Every other outfit had codes and ciphers operating for them, but as I've indicated, Stalin preferred to steal documents rather than work at them with um, strange people who do crossword puzzles and play chess well. Um, but this set Russia back. Why? Because the West was groping slowly forward to uh, becoming more proficient in codes and ciphers into getting hold of documents sent you know, through the airways, intercepting them, and then working on them, breaking them down to their original form. The Americans, after a false start, got going pretty well in the 1930s on Japanese documents with amazing, amazing success. And the British, after the usual trying everything else, managed to get quite efficient at doing this sort of thing by just in time as usual in 1939 at Bletchley Park and various other outliers. But because Stalin had done so well through burglary and had recruited these gems of agents who were friends, he sort of neglected the Code and Cipher people. And the Code and Cipher section in Moscow was a large room full of the most extraordinary people in the late 30s. There was one man with a beard right down to his feet, 
There were people from Slovakia, Germany. There were aristocratic old ladies wearing pearls. It was sort of like a human zoo from the last century. And these people were busy um, decrypting um, Western diplomatic correspondence and military correspondence. Then came the late 1930s. 1937, the summer of 37, Stalin decides he needs to wipe out the upper echelons of the civil service, the upper echelons of the army, therefore the upper echelons of the intelligence services, including code and ciphers, um, anyone else I haven't thought of. And, and they went through lists to have these people shot. The assumption was he could not guarantee their loyalty. And, and these people were replaced en masse. There was one period in 1938 for about nine months where there was no communication between the Lubyanka and the um, Russian military intelligence service, Kropotkinskaya, out to their agents in the field. Because the people who should have done the communicating were being taken out and shot or removed to Siberia, out of the way. And then they decided, Stalin made a famous speech in private where he said, we need a good intelligence service. And the people listening must have thought, yes, so why did you wipe everybody out? And, and so they started to recruit en masse. They just found bright graduates, summoned them to the Lubyanka where they thought they might be arrested and shot, then said, you are now a member of the intelligence service. They put them in covered wagons, sent them out to what was known as the woods, 40 kilometers outside Moscow, to a special park where they were trained how to be intelligence operatives. So having wiped people out because he didn't trust them, he created a new generation of people he probably wasn't going to trust, but he'd let them start anyway, um, and the people in the field, like Philby, McLean, all these people, and the Americans, because there were a large number of Americans recruited in the 30s, particularly by military intelligence, were utterly bewildered what was happening. And then Stalin signed a pact with Hitler in the summer of 1939, Nazi-Soviet pact. So a lot of people who believed in the Soviet Union ceased believing. This was their major problem in America, more Americans dropped out at that point than Brits. The Brits, by then, were really hard-nosed people. They could take almost anything you threw at them. They were too far in to get out. Um, and no one, no one um, went and confessed to the services. This was Stalin's best investment. But as we know, World War II, well, your generations know, World War II was fought against Hitler and the Germans, not the Russians. Um, but most of the best Russian assets were actually in Britain and the United States. Their assets in Germany were always pretty bad because they never penetrated the Nazi hierarchy at the top. There was this thing the Germans invented called the Red Orchestra, which was supposedly this neatly arranged um, Russian network working in and against Germany. In fact, yes, there was such a network, but it, it really dealt in things that Stalin didn't much need, like diplomatic documents that he could open safes for. Um, the German network was almost non-existent. But there was enough. There was enough there 
that should have told him the Germans were going to attack in the summer of 1941. But he didn't believe them for, for several reasons. One of which was he had so much access to British secret documents, cabinet papers, prime ministerial papers, through this echelon of British spies. And what were they saying Germany would do? Almost entirely until the middle of April 1941, they were saying Germany is not likely to launch a, a, an invasion of Russia. That would be a crazy idea. Of course, Hitler was crazy. But anyway, that, that would be a crazy idea. And then I remember sitting in the public record office, because they didn't release these embarrassing papers for 50 years in London, um, um, reading Fitzroy MacLean, who was a very celebrated figure, giving 15 reasons why the Germans wouldn't invade Russia. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what became Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Imperial Staff, um, Stalin had access to all these assessments saying they wouldn't attack. So when Churchill hints that Hitler's going to attack, of course Stalin doesn't believe him. Churchill would obviously want Russia in the war against Germany. There was that. And the second point was there were hundreds of reports coming in from across Europe, from all sorts of people, including Russian agents, saying Germany is going to attack. But Stalin didn't want to believe them. And the people working directly under him, I mean, the man in charge of military intelligence had actually been arrested only two years earlier and um, almost went off to a camp, but his life was saved. So he wasn't going to tell Stalin something Stalin didn't want to know. That was a real problem. The second point is the Germans introduced into the network, the German, the Soviet network, a double agent who was a bolt called Berlinks. And Berlinks was recruited by the man in charge of Soviet intelligence in Berlin at the embassy, Mr. Kobolov, who was completely useless. He was very good at interrogation and torture, but he'd been put in charge of the residency in Berlin without any German. And he met this Bolt, who seemed fabulous, who said, you know, I've got access to Hitler's circle. You know, you pay me enough, I'll get you what you want. So he sends in disinformation for the next nine months into uh, Stalin's office. And of course, Stalin is reading this saying, oh, this is the real thing. The other stuff I don't believe. Um, these and other reasons made sure that Stalin was unprepared. And there was one more thing. Stalin's counterintelligence people managed to bug the military attaché's office in Moscow, the German military attaché's office in Moscow, Ernst Kerstring, in April. And they bugged the office, but it appears that Kerstring knew it was bugged. Because if you read the accounts of what Kerstring was telling everybody, he was telling everybody that, no, of course, Germany won't actually attack uh, this summer. We don't need to. What we'll do is we'll get a Russian to provoke an attack. We'll get a Russian to shoot a German. Some German or other will arrange. And um, Russians will think he's coming. They'll shoot him. And they will say, oh, you attacked us. You know, if you don't uh, negotiate with us and make concessions, we'll go to war with you. So Stalin believed if there was going to be a conflict, it would be war by provocation, like 1914, but only worse. 
So he wasn't ready for 41, and, and it's one of the reasons Russia lost 27 million dead in the Second World War. A large quantity of those were through those errors. Now, you might have thought Stalin would then question his judgment, which he may have done for two or three days, but after that, that was gone. The main thing was no one else would question his judgment, and they went ahead using the British and American networks in World War II. Now, because Stalin had neglected codes and ciphers, he couldn't read all the German military communications. The people in Bletchley were starting to break into what was called the Enigma machine codes that were known as the product was called Ultra. And the British were doing it on an, on an industrial scale and then let the Americans in on it after a little while. And the Americans began doing it on an industrial scale. Stalin could not read German military communications. One of the reasons why they nearly lost the war in 1942 with Stalin's offensives and why they ended up on their, almost on their knees at Stalingrad. But they had one member of the Cambridge Five who worked at Bletchley for nearly one, well, over one year, but only half a year on the Eastern Front material. And this was John Cairncross. And he sent in what he had of the decrypted information um, that was often lying around waste paper baskets at uh, Bletchley and sent it all in to Moscow. So Moscow got to see what London got to see. Only the very top people in London got to see as to what German military intentions were. And for this reason, they were able to defeat the German armies at Kursk in July 1943. But the Russians also had someone else, and we still don't know who he was. We know that his code name was Dolly, which, oh, it might have been her. Code name was Dolly. Dolly worked out of the war office. Dolly sent in so many decrypts that the, that the resident of the GRU in London had to tell Moscow, I'm sorry, we can't radio these into you um, under, um, um, under, under code. We'll have to send them through the postal service. It's unbelievable. There were such quantities. They had to send parcels to Moscow full of decrypts. I don't know what the post office was doing at the time, but they certainly weren't opening these parcels. I think they're probably opening the ones coming in and letters going out. But anyway, so there were such quantities that actually Stalin, once again, his own decryption exercise, you know, not too much effort was put into it. He was indirectly using Bletchley. Now, you can imagine these happy days don't continue indefinitely because after a while, the Americans, the British, started to realize something odd was going on and that, in fact, their mail was being read and the mail they were reading was being read. And um, from 1944 onwards, serious enterprise was engaged in trying to intercept and decrypt Russian communications out of New York and out of London, which they start to do. And then they realize with the defection of a Russian spy, uh, Guzienka, in Canada in September 1945, that in fact, 
the Russians were engaged in a massive espionage operation against them. And by then, the British and Americans have got so good, they're breaking into Russian codes and ciphers from 1945 through to 1948. And Stalin gets to hear about it once again through his friends in London. And, uh, and there's one night, there's a Friday night in the autumn of 1948, when all of a sudden, the Russians stop sending any communications into the Western world. On Friday night, everything closes down. And then on Monday morning, all the communications start up again with the rest of the world with new codes and ciphers that the West can't break, called Black Friday in, um, at the National Security Agency in Washington. Now, you'd have thought Stalin then began to take codes and ciphers seriously, but he didn't. And one of the reasons he couldn't was because certainly in those days, but also later, you had to make advances not only in uh, mathematics, but also in engineering in order to do what Bletchley did. You had to go towards computation. Now, the Russia that was assassinated, you know, in which it was easy to get murdered and sent off to Siberia in the late 30s and even into the war, was not a free intellectual climate. There was no contact with the West. There was no way of academics knowing what their colleagues were doing anywhere. And worse still, the ideologues in Russia viewed any ideas that came from the West as tainted. So, and this is where in the 1940s, the whole area of biological sciences in Russia were ruined by a man called Lysenko, who believed in inherited, uh, you could reform inherited characteristics. And so anything connected with biology was a dead field. And the trouble was the advances in genetics, in biology, involved statistics. And statistics were critical, in critically involved in statistics was the use of them for probability, the use of probability theory. And Russia had one of the best people in the world in probability theory. This is critical for codes and ciphers in this period. You've got to get hold of a text and work out what is the probable use of certain letters or certain words. The trouble was you couldn't, you couldn't encourage people into such a field. Why would you go into mathematical probability theory, which wasn't the sexiest, if you could be accused of helping Western biologists against our patriot Lysenko. So in other words, the academic climate in Russia so deteriorated in the late 40s that they couldn't actually get what was needed intellectually into codes and ciphers, which were the best mathematicians. And then finally in 1949, Stalin reforms codes and ciphers into a new organization called Goose. And Goose went out, obviously under advice, to try and recruit all these top probability theorists in Russia, and they refused to join, which was extremely dangerous to do in Russia. They refused to join the grounds it was connected to the security services, which, of course, it was. So some of the top people just refused to go in. Stalin, by then, was not in a good state, and 
His doctors were getting shot. I mean, that was because he wanted them shot. I know we all feel like that sometimes, but um, <laughs> with the present health of his... But, but still, that, that's what was happening. And then Stalin dies, and you might have thought, oh, that's a great opportunity. <laughs> um, but actually, it wasn't, uh, because none of the people in charge really understood anything, and the Cambridge Five began to break because the West realized the Russians were reading our mail and they had spies inside. Donald McLean, one of the five, was identified and he escaped to Russia and Guy Burgess, who was a little nervous, ran off with him. And so Kim Philby was exposed and the, the, this Cambridge net broke. All of a sudden, Moscow was cut off from the highest level of intelligence from Britain, which meant then the US as well. And so after Stalin died, the year after, they had to completely reform the intelligence services. And um, one of the statements made in the Politburo by Malinkov, who was then just still in charge, was that our intelligence services are ruined. They're in a dreadful state. And they sort of started from scratch, but they did build them back up again. And the story of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s is how uh, Russian military intelligence and the uh, code and cipher services, the special service, and the KGB actually became formidable, all three of them, by the time we get into the 1980s and Gorbachev. And in fact, their penetration of Western services reached a height, you know, um, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s. They were, they'd never done so well before. You can, if you read the literature from these services now, they're saying, yeah, but we made it. And then Gorbachev came along and gave it all away. <laughs> so we want to start again. Um, the, the success in penetrating the United States services was entirely through money, entirely the power of money. So Stalin was wrong. You couldn't really find Americans who were going to be committed to the October Revolution um, in the 1960s and 70s. Things were too good in the United States. But you did have the Vietnam War, and you did have a lot of disorientation. So people, there were enough people to betray their own country, and some of them over here as well. Um, so the story of the Russian intelligence service is very much one where the Stalinistic philosophy, which was actually a philosophy from the October Revolution, a matter of belief, that the West really couldn't play with is inverted in the 1970s and 80s where the West is able to recruit people from Russia because they started to believe in capitalism and democracy instead of socialist values. Their main um, spy in the, in the GRU, military intelligence, was Mr. Polyakov. And Polyakov was recruited in the early 60s and only discovered after he retired Polyakov, when he was caught, said, yes, I did it. Uh, I hate you people. I hate this regime. You know, I don't care what you do with me. I've retired. You know, stuff it. And um, uh, <laughs> the, the people who interrogated him were amazed, you know, that he just, okay, I've done it. There's nothing to be done about it. To be able to say that, you could, this would never have happened in the 40s under Stalin. This was a completely different world where a lot of Russians began to feel they, should, they could and should exercise their own choices of conscience. Now, 
the closer we go up to the present, certainly that's why my work ends with Gorbachev and the, and the end of the Cold War, obviously the thinner things become, the more difficult it is to find out what was going on. But throughout these periods, even under Stalin, even when some people had the threat of being shot by him for giving bad advice, in the late 40s, people would stand up to him and say, no, I think we ought to reform the service and do the following. And Stalin sometimes listened to those people. Under Khrushchev, the same thing. Under Brezhnev, with Andropov in charge, that was an easy one, because Andropov liked to listen to people um, with different ideas, provided they were loyal to the regime. And if you were loyal to the regime and you wanted to improve things for these services, Andropov would listen to you and get the money. And that's why these Soviet services were so effective in the 70s and through into the 80s. Anyway, that's as far as I can go because my clock tells me it's time to go into questions. So if you would like to indicate, there are roving microphones for you. In 1924, there was the Znoviev letter affair. What has your research shown you to suggest what the Russian view of that business was? Yeah, well, it's interesting because the, the Commissar for Foreign Affairs thought it might actually be real and got very upset at the intelligence services. The intelligence services um, 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 asked the Communist Party and the Comintern, and they said, well, we hadn't sent this thing in any way. Read it properly. We wouldn't have written such a document. And they did the research in it, and they found it came from one of these factories in Berlin where they produced these documents for amounts of money. And um, the documents were sold through, I think it was the uh, British residency um, in Reval or in Riga. Um, um, and the trouble was MI6 used to employ, there's another few lectures on MI6, MI6 used to employ people who'd grown up in Russia who were the children of businessmen who'd been dispossessed by the October Revolution. They'd buy anything. I mean, there was a great deal of money to be made in, 19, the, in the beginning of the Cold War and in the 1920s by selling fake Soviet documents. It was a fake the MI6 realized it was a fake. The permanent undersecretary of the Foreign Office realized it was a fake. They thought, well, even if it's fake, it's plausible, and that's the sort of thing they're doing anyway. So they let it through. Yeah. Do you have a view on the Nosenko defection? <laughs> well, this is somebody who... who um, defected at what seemed to American counterintelligence like too opportune a time after, um, and came out saying that uh, um, Russia had nothing to do with President Kennedy's assassination. And um, the thing is, in these intelligence services, you only know what's going on in your compartment you don't know what's going on there. You don't, there isn't a sort of a canteen at Hodinka Airport 
where all the guys sit down and say, hey, what are you doing to the Syrians today? And, you know, it doesn't work like that. So what he was doing, what I hate, I hope I'm not going to upset anybody here, but what a lot of defectors do. They oversell themselves. They think, because they come from a system where you have to know what the boss wants to know, and then you tell the boss. And that's what they were doing. James Angleton at CIA thought, oh, God, this is a Russian plant. And Bruce Bagley and others sort of, well, they, I don't know they actually beat him up, but they put him in solitary and subjected him to degrading treatment that's normal in Guantanamo for five years or so. And the poor guy really didn't know anything. Um, he knew one or two things because uh, there were tip-offs about other people but that were small fry, but they, the American counterintelligence people thought he'd been sent over to, to delude them about Russian responsibility for, cast, for the, um, for the uh, Kennedy assassination. That was essentially it. So Nosenko, I think, um, did what defectors usually do, overplayed his hand and paid a horrible price for it. And Angleton, in the end, was seen to be slightly mentally disturbed and, and sort of casually retired off from the service. But Bruce Bagley still believes they were right, but I think he's the only person. Can, can we? Oh. Hello. Um, in the Second World War, um, after the Germans attacked the Russians, um, you said they didn't have a way of getting German um, military information. But didn't the Allies supply them with it as allies at that, or even though reluctant ones at that time, was there any transfer, official transfer of information? Yes, yes, there was. The trouble was, um, in Whitehall, um, you can read this in, um, in Alan Brooks' diaries, um, which are probably available in all these second-hand bookshops now. Um, and um, they, they loathed the Russians, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, loathed the Russians, uh, particularly the leaders of the Labour Party and the coalition government loathed the Russians. The only people who liked the Russians in the government was Beaverbrook, and he was regarded as suspect because he was Canadian and very wealthy, and, and half of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was always two people in everything. There was half of Winston Churchill, so it depended on the day. And... Um, uh, <laughs> So what they did was they gave them, well, you know, I mean, they gave them snippets, you know. If you put a Lord Chief Justice in charge of an inquiry in London, they'll produce a report with snippets that 30 years later will be found to be a complete load of lies. But the snippets seemed to look good. So what they fed them was actually not much good at all. And the trouble was the British then fed the same material through to Sandorado's ring, part of the so-called Red Orchestra in Switzerland. And then Stalin started to look at the stuff coming in from London, then look at the stuff that was coming in from the GRU ring in Switzerland. That's funny, they <laughs> match up. And then he got the stuff from Cairncross and Dolly... And it was obvious that he wasn't getting the right stuff. So they were sending it late. They were sending... Why? Partly because everybody in the services regarded the Bolsheviks as just as bad as the fascists. They were the next war. And secondly, um, 
the, um, the difficulty was, how would you know what happened to that material when it got to Moscow? Because the Germans were intercepting and decrypting some Russian communications, and the British knew it because they were reading some of the German communications about the intercepts. So in other words, that, that, that's why it happened. It was a miracle, in fact, that Stalin um, kept the information he got from Bletchley so close to himself that it, 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 it never leaked out through to the Germans. That was perhaps the main worry. And it's always a worry with an ally if you give them some of the information. Um, well, you mentioned at one point a thriving Soviet intelligence service among the Americans. What was the impact of the arguably slightly frenzied McCarthyist movement to, on the Soviet intelligence system? Um, I'm sorry, I don't quite follow it. What, what, what was the impact of McCarthyism on, on the Soviet intelligence? Yes. Um, well, the trouble was with McCarthy was that he made everything up. Um, and and that the people that, uh, no, it's serious, it, because of McCarthy, um, the truth about those people who were denounced by Elizabeth Bentley, who'd been working for Gorlis, who was the main Soviet resident, um, was not believed by liberal and liberal left people. McCarthy completely discredited the idea that there could be any spies in the American government. And so... Um, I think there were only two people in her whole testimony who were actually, um, you know, that most good-thinking Americans believe were guilty. The Americans couldn't reveal who was guilty because they didn't want to reveal they'd intercepted and decrypted Russian communications. What they didn't know was the Russians already knew that because they had a spy in Army Signals. William Weisband was a spy for them um, in, in, uh, up to the early 1950s. So McCarthyism actually was, in a sense, played into the hands of the Russians. So people, people refuse even today to believe that Alger Hiss could have been guilty. Well, Alger Hiss was running a GRU ring with his brother, Donald, and we have the information on that now from Soviet material. Um, so um, McCarthyism was a spoiler in that sense. America would have done, well, it wasn't a choice, was it? would have been far better off without it in other ways. Too. You, you raised this very interesting uh, question about the identity of Dolly. <laughs> and I wonder if you could develop that a little bit more. I mean, do you think that she has actually been uh, um, unmasked? And if she hasn't, has your research suggested who she might have been ah. and whether she's still alive? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have a communication with, uh, with someone whom the newspapers, say, the newspapers said his father um, was Dolly. Or they don't give the name Dolly, but they say he was the one sending stuff out in number. Um, McKibben, the publisher. And he was a die-hard communist. I mean, he joined the party under Stalin. I mean, in the 40s. And um, he would have done it if he could. But um, I know what Dolly was sending out. I mean, I know what the Russians got from Dolly. And he couldn't have sent... There were two lots to it. There were the first part of the war, 
after 41, um, was um, um, he was sending out intercepted Japanese communications. So that would fit certain people. And the second half, it was the stuff on Kursk and all the German front. Well, McKibben was interrogating prisoners of war, uh, German prisoners of war in the first half of the war. He had to, it wasn't involved in it. So it couldn't have been McKibben. And I've no idea who it was, and I'm trying to track them down, so if anybody knows. <laughs> but the fact it was Dolly, it was GRU, it was, it was military intelligence. The, um, the um, Cheka, the, uh, the people like Philby and that, they all had German names because Arnold Deutsch recruited them for Russia. So, so it was a different network, and we don't know the entire scope of the GRU network. One day, maybe we will. I, I have a suspicion it may not have been a serviceman. It could have been a civilian secretary because the Russians had a specialism in getting to secretaries, as you know, was done um, by the German, East German Secret Service with the Romeo spies. And, and they did have a technique for that. And we've, we don't seem to have come across them. And I, it may well be a, a critical... If you were secretary to... Uh, to uh, chairman equivalent to chairman of the Joint Chiefs or whatever. My goodness, what you could have sent in. Um, we've got 43 seconds. Yes. What is the Russian Secret Service doing now and why? Oh. Well, the services are very busy, as all services are, perpetuating themselves. <laughs> and there's enough misbehavior in the world and threats to interests in Russia to have them busy. So at the moment, they're watching us in the eastern Mediterranean, trying to read what's coming in and out of Cyprus, etc., see what we're up to. It's not a bad thing. We sh they should know what we're doing, because we're not doing anything, basically. Um, <laughs> That's the story of intelligence. Thank you very much. Thank you.